Hi folks, this is Cameron Riley. We launched something in the last couple of weeks called the TPN 500. Basically, in order to keep TPN going, we need to find a way to create a sustainable revenue base to cover the costs of the servers and the bandwidth and IT support, those sorts of things. And we're really relying on our audience to support us in this way. But not all of our audience, just 500 of them. We're calling it the TPN 500. Basically, what we're asking the TPN 500 to do is to sign up to the cost of a beer or a cup of coffee, five bucks a week, 20 bucks a month, that we can then use to keep TPN running and we can add a lot more content over the course of the next year. If you would like to be a member of the TPN 500, please visit the link on the Napoleon Show. You'll see a big sign saying, join the TPN 500. It'll take you about two minutes to sign up and uh, you can play a significant role in keeping TPN on the air. Thanks. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Napoleon Bonaparte podcast. This is episode 52, once again joined by my friend and co-host, the Honourable President of the International Napoleonic Society and Napoleon Advisor to the Stars, J. David Markham. Welcome back, sir. Well, uh, hi, Cameron. It's good to be back as always. Uh, I, I suppose I've given you some some uh, advice on Napoleon, so that uh, that would make me, you know, advisor to the stars. I suppose. Well, I know that when uh, Paris Hilton and uh, you know Brad Pitt are looking for someone to talk to about Napoleon, they they come to you. They come through the back entrance so they don't get seen, and uh, you sit down and you say, "Well, look, no, look, Borodino." wasn't really a, a, an out-and-out victory for Napoleon. There's some debate about that. But, um, look, I understand well, how you feel. Well, I'm, I'm certainly willing to, to consult with Paris Hilton on any topic she wishes. Brad Pitt's another story, of course. Uh, but uh, if, you, if Paris are you Hilton... And Brad, are you and Brad still tiffing over that? Look, he won fair and square, <laughs> man. I mean, you gave her a shot. You know, he just uh, had the bigger bank balance. I'm, well, I'm sure of that. I, I, I'm afraid that, that I would, going after Paris Hilton, I would feel like this advertisement that I see in the, uh, in, in the American Way uh, uh, magazine and other magazines when I fly of this uh, 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 Oklahoma farm boy or whatever. He, he knew he had one chance at, uh, with this Italian supermodel, and so it's an ad for learning Italian on DVDs or something. I think I would, I would have to do a lot more than learn Paris Hilton speak to uh, beat out Brad Pitt. But anyway, getting on to, to much uh, safer and, and saner uh, ground, we are once again joined uh, by my, my very, very good friend and top scholar, uh, Alexander uh, Michavarezzi. Alex, how are you doing this evening? Hello, everyone. Uh, it's a pleasure to be back. Um, so I hope you're all doing well. Welcome back to the show, Alex. Thank you. Well, last last time that uh, that we talked, uh, Alex, we uh, we went through uh, pretty much the rest of the the eighteen twelve uh, campaign, including, of course, the strategic withdrawal uh, from Russia by the no longer so Grand Armée. Uh, we skipped over Berezina a little bit, I'm afraid, and we might come back to that. But but I remember uh, throughout this discussion I had with you, uh, 
episodes uh, and, and, and in private conversations that we've had that one of the most interesting uh, things that, that you bring to the table, as it were, when it comes to Napoleonic studies is the extensive research that you've done uh, reading original Russian archival uh, material uh, on some of the the, the Russian general, as, as you pointed out last week, uh, most of our uh, podcast listeners uh, probably look at the Napoleonic period pretty much from the, 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 the French or at the very least the Western European uh, perspective. As you pointed out, we most of us can name an awful lot of French generals and marshals, but we can't do too well. Uh, with those from Russia, I think most of our listeners probably know uh, something about Mikhail uh, Kutuzov, uh, perhaps de Tolly and Bagration. Uh, Benningson gets mentioned occasionally. Uh, you know, uh, Wittgenstein. Maybe one of my favorites is Mikhail uh, Miloradovich, uh, but that's mainly because I have a copy of the English version, I hasten to add, copy of his memoirs from the 19th century. So I thought what we would do, uh, if, if you're willing, is to have you just sort of give us a sense of what some of these folks were like. What were their strengths and weaknesses? <coughs> Excuse me. What were the... Uh, some some interesting characteristics they might have, some personality quirks, whatever you think our listeners would be interested in. And I guess it's it's not going to be very innovative, but I suppose we should start with the 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 biggie, the 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 wily old fox, uh, uh, Mikhail uh, Kutusov. What what can you tell us about Kutusov? <clears throat> well, um. Uh, it, it, this is probably the first post podcast that will be uh, dealing uh, specifically with the Russian generals, and so it's, I'm really uh, happy that uh, you both agreed to it. Uh, so let's start with Kutuzov. Um, his uh, full name is uh, Mikhail Ilarionovich Golenishev Kutuzov. He was I'm born sure to glad a very that you had to do that. I'm sure glad. <laughs> sorry, I didn't mean it. I'm just yeah, really uh, glad, by the way, that you had to pronounce that and not me. And for our listeners, uh, you can be certain that I will do everything I can to avoid having to pronounce the list <laughs> of generals I have in front of me. <laughs> well, uh, actually, anyway, Kutuzov, we, uh, we, we often refer to him as simply Kutuzov, but his full name is uh, Galenishev Kutuzov. And that is the, one of the most ancient uh, family names, uh, noble family names in Russia. So you know, his uh, his family was a very good standing, and um, uh, he he was born in uh, 1747. Uh, quite often, you will see the date of 1745 referred to his biographies, but uh, the most recent research, which was done a couple of year, couple of years ago, proved that uh, the the true birth date for him is 1747. So by the time of 1812, he's 65 years old, and he spent most of his life in the army. Uh, he enlisted at the age of 14, and uh, actually I, I probably should, make it, uh, should note here that um, Russia had a very interesting system in terms of enlistment. Uh, Peter the Great uh, is uh, described as the founder of the, uh, of the Russian regular army, and Peter really pushed for meritocracy. That is, uh, officers should be promoted based on merit, that uh, uh, nobles should not uh, receive any preferential treatment, and so on. And so um, nobles were required to serve as private soldiers uh, 
uh, in the Russian army. But the nobles responded by finding the loophole. Uh, the law did not specify at which age uh, noblemen can enlist in the army. And so what would happen is, so let's say, David, you have a child, you have a son, and uh, I'm your good friend, I'm a head of the regiment. You would come to me and you'll say, hey, Alex, uh, I just had the son. Uh, would you mind signing him, uh, enlisting him in the army? Well, I would probably say, <laughs> David, he's only two days old. And you'll say, winking, that's okay, right? We are friends. And so that your son at the age of uh, two or three days will be enlisted in the army. And so what would happen is by the time he's 16, he officially has 16 years of service. And so he's eligible for rank of colonel or lieutenant colonel. And so uh, don't be surprised, uh, listeners, if you hear me referring to officers enlisting at the age of 5, 6, uh, 10, or 12. Uh, uh, that, this didn't mean that they actually served at, the, at that younger age, but most of these officers started service at the age of 16, 15, 16. And so Kutuzov was uh, age 14 when he enlisted in the army, and uh, by the time he actively uh, he began serving, uh, he was uh, he saw service uh, against the Turks, and uh, this is the time he uh, when uh, in 1770s he suffered two horrifying uh, wounds to the head. Uh, one of the wound one 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 time a bullet, a Turkish bullet, uh, hit him in the eye, completely removing it. And the second time he uh, it was uh, he was hit in the in uh, on on the side of the skull. And everyone thought he would be—he was dead, uh, but he traveled to Germany, uh, and somehow, miraculously, he recovered. And so, other, uh, most of the uh, portraits uh, that are painted, if you notice, he's shown always in not in an unfast, not in his old face, but always looking towards some brighter future. And uh, he's shown <laughs> always on one side uh, where his his eye was retained. Uh, after the fighting against the Turks, uh, he was actually appointed as an ambassador to to Ottoman Empire in 1790s, and he showed uh, very considerable diplomatic skills. Uh, he returned home in late 1790s uh, and uh, was uh, served as a director of a, one of the great, one of the very important education, military educational institutions, uh, known as an Engineer and Artillery Cadet Corps, and so. As a director of that cadet corps, he supervised uh, the education of uh, several generations, you know, thousands of uh, officers. And so essentially, entire generation of Russian officers passed through this, uh, this uh, cadet corps while Kutuzov was there. And so he, he knew many officers and many officers you know, looked up to him. Uh, and uh, Kutuzov had a rather close relationship with Emperor Paul. And as I mentioned once in postcast, uh, he was uh, one of the very last people who saw Paul alive. He had a dinner the night before uh, Paul was assassinated. And uh, that uh, closeness to Paul uh, created tensions between Kutuzov and Emperor Alexander. And so uh, in 1802, uh, as tensions uh, increased between the emperor and him, uh, Kutuzov retired from his position. Um, he spent three years in the semi-retirement, enjoying private life. Uh, then in 1805, when the, th the War of Third Coalition began, he was called back to lead the army, and we know what happened, right? He marched all the way to, uh, to uh, Austria, uh, where and then heard about the Austrian surrender at Ulm, marched as soon as, could, as he could back, and then at Austerlitz he recommended further retreat, but was, was overruled by Alexander, uh, resulting in, in the Allied defeat. And so Kutuzov, uh, you know, for Alexander, Kutuzov was a reminder that uh, um, Austerlitz could have been prevented, that if he had listened to Kutuzov, 
the the battle with completely different ways. And uh, remarkably, Kutuzov was blamed for the defeat. And so the next four years after the Battle of Austerlitz, he's in, in disgrace, in this imperial disgrace. And he's sent to rule provinces in Ukraine and Lithuania, which essentially is uh, like a periphery. Well, let me, let, me ask you, yeah. let, me, let me ask you a, a quick question. Uh, how was it, since he had advised... Uh, Emperor Alexander and 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 the rest of the uh, folks there uh, that, given the situation with Napoleon, uh, that further withdrawal would would be what was necessary. Uh, his advice was ignored. How is it that he ends up being blamed for the loss? Well. Um uh, blamed because um, under um, yeah, technically he's the commander of the Russian army, although under Russian uh, rules, military regulations, uh, emperor when emperor joined the army, he essentially uh, formally took over the command of the army. But Kutuzov sure. was uh, uh, no nominally still in charge of the army, and so uh, after the battle, since Kutuzov nominally is a commander of the army, the defeat is blamed on him. But the decision, uh, although you know, Kutuzov famously recommends retreating further towards Poland, and uh, you know he wants to uh, quote bury the French bones in the, in Moravia, uh, he's overruled because of the influence of the younger generation of officers. One of whom is uh, probably known to the listeners. Um, you know, he's a Prince uh, Peter Dolgorukov, and he's a very good example of what I mentioned. Uh, in the beginning of this past, uh, Dolgorukov is born in December of 1777, but and he enlisted in the elite uh, uh, life Guards regiment at the age of three months, and so by the time he's uh, 20, he's already a colonel, and by the time he's 21, he's already major general. So a very good career <laughs> without actually seeing a ser any actual service, and so yeah, uh, Dolgorukov I'd say so. <laughs> By 21, being a general is quite good. Uh, yeah, so I mean, yeah Rukov, that's right up there with Napoleon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just ahead of him, right? <laughs> yes. Uh, in 1805, uh, Dolgoruka famously served on that mission to, Nepal, to the uh, Grand Armée's camp, where Napoleon plays, uh, the, plays him uh, rather well. Uh, he uses the, you know, this young prince's arrogance. And he portrays himself weak. Uh, and so when Bolgorukov comes back, he convinces Alexander that Napoleon is weak, that he's uh, uh, concerned about potential attack from the Allies. And so Alexander finally makes a decision to attack based on this influence Dolgorukov, or best of testimony of Dolgorukov. So Kutuzov uh, uh, is, is blamed, as, as I mentioned. And so he's uh, disgraced in Ukraine and Lithuania. Then in 1810, um, Kutuzov uh, returns back to the actual active command of the army. Uh, by then, um, in 1810, uh, Russia has been fighting the Turks for four years, and this is a very prolonged conflict. No major uh, victories, and Russia wants to end the war as soon as possible. Uh, because as uh, at that time, in 1810, uh, uh, Alexander already expects potential conflict with France. So he wants to free additional forces from the uh, Danubian principalities. And so Kutuzov is given command of Russian forces in the Danubian region, uh, present-day uh, uh, actually Romania and uh, Bulgaria. And so he shows his military prowess 
when he crushes the Ottoman army in 1811. He surrounds uh, the entire Ottoman army and actually starves it into submission. Uh, and following that, in 1812, he negotiates a tre- peace treaty with Turks. And so in uh, that ex- really enhances his reputation. Uh, he is the man who delivered, uh, he won the major victories, and he delivered peace to Russia. And so by 1812, when the Napoleon is invading uh, Russia itself, Kutuzov is very popular in Russian society, which leads to his uh, nomination or appointment as the commander. Now, that, all of this is known, uh, rather well known in, in, in the West, but what I want to talk about is more of a, his character, because yes. uh, Kutuzov's military talents are hard to deny. And uh, he he was known as a very shrewd diplomat, but what is often forgotten that he was also very skilled, very adroit courtier. Uh, he very rarely spoke his mind openly, and uh, he was very skillful in manipulating people around him. And uh, uh, Russian, that famous Russian general uh, Alexander Suvorov, famously described him as uh, quote shrewd, very shrewd, and sharp, very sharp. No one can deceive him. And uh, Kutuzov was a very subtle uh, personality, and uh, British Commissioner Robert Wilson found him, uh, quote, to be very polished, courteous, shrewd as a Greek, naturally intelligent as an Asiatic, and well instructed <laughs> as a European, unquote. Oh, just a uh, few uh, stereotypes there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just a few, too, too, especially from a British point of view. Uh, a yes. Russian... Um, well, my my famous uh, well, my my favorite quote is from a Russian officer who served under Kutuzov, who descri- uh, who you know, talks about Kutuzov's uh, eloquence and his ability to m- manipulate people, and he he says, uh, "quote Kutuzov did not speak, but rather he played with his tongue like another Mozart or Rossini, who enchanted their listeners." Unquote. <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Kutuzov was also known as a uh, fam- as a womanizer. He was uh, well into his age. Uh, he's no. He was uh, very uh, fond of women, and especially while he while he was serving in the Danubian principalities, he had several mistresses, uh, which actually often caused criticism that he paid more attention to his mistresses uh, than to the army. Uh, one well, of his the most priorities crit- were uh, good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, who's going to argue with those priorities? <laughs> well, especially when he delivers, right? Although he pays attention to women more than army, he also wins battles. That's a good point. Uh, Absolutely. I knew yeah, I liked uh, this guy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, Probably the most vivid uh, but also very critical portrait of Kutuzov comes from um, a French general uh, in Russian service. By, uh, his name is Alexandre Langeron. And he, Langeron's actually uh, description of Kutuzov was... Um, uh, almost unknown in Russian uh, historiography because uh, because he was so critical of Kutuzov. Kutuzov, of course, was idolized in Russia, and especially during Soviet Union. And so this, uh, his uh, Alangeron's description of him was uh, uh, cast aside and very rarely used, if, if at all. And so this is the, his description of Kutuzov. Kutuzov was a very smart man, but also extremely weak in character, combining agility, shrewdness, and true talents with incredible immorality. Extraordinary memory, <laughs> serious education, benevolent treatment, ability to maintain interesting conversation and good-heartedness, which was pretended but pleasant to trusting individuals, these were sympathetic features of Kutuzov. 
At the same time, his ruthlessness, rudeness when angered or dealing with people he didn't have to fear, his obsequiousness, which often bordered on slavery to a person of great stature, impenetrable laziness that consumed everything, his ap- apathy, egoism, free thinking, and indelicate attitude to financial affairs comprise the opposite sides of the same man, which is you know, rather powerful description, isn't it? It certainly is. That's uh, that's fascinating. Now, did you read that in in in, in this fellow's memoirs or or yes, in, in some yes. archival material? Yeah. Yes. In, in, uh, well, it is uh, uh, his archive. His memoirs, the original memoirs, are preserved in in France in in the archives. But uh, uh, they also translate. Uh, they were also pub- published in Russia, and so I used uh, the Russian version of the memoirs. Uh, mm-hmm. to, to translate this. Uh, another, uh, one of the things is um, uh, in the same, in, coming from Langeron, who leaves a very long description of, of Kutuzov, Langeron also uh, lamented about Kutuzov's um, assistants, uh, adjutants, and secretaries who, quote, did whatever they wished with him. And although Kutuzov was undoubtedly much smarter and knowledgeable than them, he never bothered to check their work, not to mention to correct it. And so he signed everything presented to him in order to quickly free himself of daily business, to which he already dedicated only a few minutes per day before delegating it to the other generals. And so it, it's, you know, it's quite, uh, uh, quite uh, uh, critical. Uh, the same uh, similar description. Yeah, well, the similar description comes also in uh, Benningsen's memoirs. Uh, Benningsen talks about uh, uh, Kutuzov. Uh, Having uh, by the especially by the you know 60s by 1810 1811 especially 1812 he talks about Kutuzov losing the habit of mental work as he describes it and uh, another officer uh, Sergei Mayevsky uh, writes the following uh, for Kutuzov to write ten words was more difficult than for some people to produce hundred pages. <laughs> Uh, and uh, <laughs> that sounds like me trying to write my book. Sometimes, if I could just write ten words, maybe I could do a hundred pages. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the start is always difficult. But one, you, one you also one. <laughs> one, but you know, all the the descriptions are you know similar descriptions can be found in in other memoirs. One must also remember that under this drowsy, maybe absent-minded appearance of Kutuzov was also his very keen judgment, very uh, cunning and patient mind. And so although he might seem lazy, he's very shrewd and perceptive. Well, uh, you know, so I think, I think this, is, this is something I wanted to ask you about. And uh, we seem to have – I don't mean listeners and Alex to interrupt you, but there seems to be a little bit of a lag time for when I start talking to when – you're able to realize that I'm that I'm talking because of the Skype system, so I apologize for that uh, problem. I'm I'm thinking that some of these folks uh, you mentioned, Benningson, for example, and, and maybe some others, is any of this professional jealousy or or even personal jealousy? How come he has four mistresses? You know, is is this you know? Do we have to take this with a certain grain of salt, or or do you think these uh, are people who work with them and therefore? Uh, are, are giving us a good, uh, legitimate uh, evaluation. 
Um, yes or no? Once, yeah, uh, so there is certain truth in this description, absolutely. And uh, but there is also this factor that uh, Benningsen uh, hated Kutuzov, and uh, especially in 1812, the two got, the, the two of them came to blow almost to blows. Uh, Benningsen had a uh, ambition of becoming the commander of the Russian armies, uh, but he was uh, snubbed, and uh, the command went to Kutuzov. And so there is there is this famous uh, rivalry between the the two. There is uh, Benningsen criticizing Kutuzov at Borodino. Uh, there is Benningsen criticizing Kutuzov at Moscow, at uh, Tarutino camp. And so finally, Kutuzov is so fed up with Benningsen that he orders him to leave the army. And so, of course, this is something we need to uh, keep in mind that Benningsen is, is of course, um, uh, jealous of Kutuzov. If not, uh, if not outright, he hates him uh, as a as, as a competitor, right? As a rival. Sure. Now um, the the other uh, general that we probably should uh, you know look at uh, is uh, let's uh, let's uh, if you know since we talked about Benningsen let's uh, look at this guy uh, Benningsen him uh, is not Russian uh, he's uh, he's uh, born in Hanover and he was raised there uh, for for a while and um, he actually fought in the Seven Years War uh, then uh, he. Uh, Decided to end, enlist in the Russian army, and so he spent the rest of his uh, he spent the rest of his army uh, the rest of his life serving in Russia. Which, uh, uh, by all accounts, he you know he dedicated his life to Russia uh, and he served uh, as best as he could. Uh, in eighteen o six, eighteen o seven, he famously commands the Russian army uh, against Napoleon in Poland, uh, where he fought those two bloody battles at Elau and Friedland. And after the late, the last one, after Friedland, he was disgraced. Uh, and uh, for the next five years, uh, he was retired to his estate. Uh, but he was able, through different manipulations and maneuvering, to put his track back on track, uh, his career, excuse me, back on track. Uh, and uh, he joined the headquarters in 1812, the main headquarters of the Russian army. And so throughout the 1812 campaign, Benningsen actively campaigns uh, uh, to to get uh, the command of the army, which he ultimately is unsuccessful. And so the highest he got in the Russian army in 1812 was uh, the position of the chief of staff to Kutuzov. And so this is when this uh, this is the conflict between the two between the Kutuzov and Benningsen starts. Now there is no doubt that Benningsen was the brave officer, and he brave officer, and his actions actually in Seven Years' War show that he's a brave officer. Uh, he, he commanded squadrons, uh, squadron uh, during the Seven Years' War, and showed as a very courageous man. But uh, when it came to the commander, uh, you know the, what we have uh, primarily is the 1806-1807 campaign, and there he shows uh, limited tactical and strategic abilities. Uh, there is no, you know, there is difficult. It's difficult to to appraise him as a great commander because he he fails on many occasions in 1806-1807. Uh, and uh, in Russia, he, uh, historians usually uh, uh, criticize him and, uh, because, of, because of his conflict with Kutuzov. Uh, because he tried to undermine Kutuzov, he was uh, looked and portrayed in very critical light. Well, uh, 
I, I find I find that interesting that there would be this this conflict between between the two of them. Is this common uh, in in the Russian military that uh, you 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 have these uh, little feuds going on and so on, uh, uh, or or is this uh, a little more unusual? I think it's it is uh, uh, usual, and it's not. I think it's usual for military <laughs> where you have the uh, uh, you know people of uh, you know ambition. Uh, want to succeed, you get promotions to senior ranks, and especially in this time and age, uh, sure. uh, French army has the same problem, right? We have the famous uh, rivalry, like rivalry between Dav- or tensions between Davou and Ney, or Ney and Murat. Uh, but uh, uh, Russian army, the, the rivalries in the Russian army are less known. Uh, some of the most famous ones uh, are between Kutuzov and Benningsen, but the less known are between Bagration and Borglade Toli, or Bagration and Miloradovich. Uh, and uh, 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 you know, I, I'm, if we have time, I will certainly talk about them uh, when we talk about Miloradovich. One of the sure. fam- one of these conflicts is uh, between uh, uh, Ataman, uh, Ataman uh, Matvey Platov, the famous Cossack leader, and mm-hmm. the title of, the, of that leader is Ataman. Uh, Platov is a very fascinating uh, individual. He is born into a prominent Cossack family. Uh, and he spent 46 years, by uh, 1812, he spent uh, 46 years in the military. So he has a very long service behind him. When, when did he, uh, how old was he when he enlisted? Uh, well, actually, in in Cossack system, uh, this, uh, the enlistment came as a bit later. So he's, uh, he's already uh, in his 20s, uh, in, in his 20s, actually, when he's enlisted. Uh, okay, uh, so, the, so he, he, he actually did serve a legitimate 40-some years. <laughs> well, yeah, actually, well, uh, he's born in 53, 1753, and he enlists in, uh, he starts his service in 1769, so that would make him, uh, what, 16? Yeah, 16, mm-hmm. yeah, so, so it's, it's about an average, uh, you know, if, if you are not from this very prominent family, noble family, then uh, it, it is about uh, uh, usual. Uh, he primarily fought against Turks, uh, he served in the Caucasus, and he served in the Danubian principalities. And he distinguished himself uh, during uh, the Russian assault on this famous fortress Ismail in 1790. By 1793, he's already a major general. And his career is actually uh, interrupted by uh, Paul, Emperor Paul, uh, when uh, uh, Paul heard the rumor, uh, or at least what happened is uh, 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 Platov had a, uh, a dream. In, in a dream is the uh, is that uh, he uh, he was at the time slightly uh, for a time he was uh, uh, unemployed uh, and uh, he had a dream that his uh, sword was uh, rusted and uh, he was uh, that in, in a dream he took this sword and he said uh, that you know the sword told him that the one time you know there will be a moment when you will use me to free yourself or something like it. And so he told a, uh, a person who thought um, that Plato, you know, Plato thought that the person was his friend. And so he told him about this dream, and it happened. Uh, uh, in reality, the the person ran, and he told Plato, uh, Emperor Paul that Plato had the dream, and this dream might be a, a sign that Plato was um, uh, conspiring to overthrow the emperor, right? Using the sword, rusted sword, to free himself. Sure. So the poor Plato was arrested and imprisoned. And uh, so he spent about a year, uh, a year or so in prison, 
And when he was freed in 1800, uh, uh, he, uh, Emperor Paul gave, uh, sent him on that uh, inf- infamous uh, expedition, Cossack expedition to India. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, which, of course, nothing came out of it. Um, when Paul was assassinated, uh, Platov uh, saw his career to, uh, you know, b- back on track and uh, he was promoted to uh, lieutenant general. And he became uh, the leader of the Don Cossacks, uh, um, using the title of Ottoman. And so under this title, he fights in Poland uh, and so on. Uh, Platov is a very interesting guy because uh, contemporaries actually left a very contrasting, uh, very contradicting assessment of him. Uh, Some uh, commended his generous generous and open-hearted character, uh, highlighted his reckless courage, and actually they described him as a tempest. Uh, there's this you know uh, courageous tempest that blows on the battlefield uh, while others actually portrayed him as a very distrustful, very suspicious, incompetent, and arrogant man. Uh, Barclay de Tolly famously had a major feud with Platov, and he constantly complained about Platov's negligence and inefficiency. And in early in in 1812 in August, uh, Barclay de Tolly wrote a letter to Emperor Alexander in which he describes uh, Platov as follows, quote, As a commander of uh, irregular forces, General Platov is given too high of a command and lacks the nobility of character appropriate for this position. He is egoistical and a sybarite of the highest degree. He is so <laughs> indolent that I have to send some of my adjutants to remain with him or with advanced posts to make sure that all my orders are carried out by him. Goodness. And so uh, it was uh, because of Barclay de Tolly, uh, uh, Platov is actually removed from a command of the rear guard at Smolensk. And so Platov hates that. And uh, uh, he's, he, Platov especially hates the fact that Barclay de Tolly is uh, surrounded by German officers. Uh, pro- many of them are Prussians, some of them are Hanoverians. And so Platov feels that this is a German spirit that you know, hangs uh, heavily on the, over the Russian army. And uh, Yermolov, another Russian officer, uh, had the interesting conversation with uh, with Platov at Smolensk. They were uh, it's the evening time, and so they're sitting together. And uh, Platov suggests to him uh, that maybe one of the one of the uh, adjutants of Barclay de Tolly, um, uh, by the, a man by the name of Wolzogen, whom Platov hates most of all, and uh, he tells Yermolov, <laughs> "How about?" Uh, once again on a reconnaissance mission and Yermolov looks at him surprisingly and asks him why and Platov says well uh, I will send a couple of my guys a couple of Cossacks with Wolzogen and make sure Wolzogen never comes back and so Yermolov is stunned to hear that Platov here talks about essentially murdering an adjutant of the commander in chief uh, (laughs) which uh, Platov was serious about it Uh, then um, uh, Yermolov also had this interesting comment about him that Platov was uh, found on several occasions for um, carelessly performing his duties. And Bagration told Yermolov uh, that he found Platov uh, very ambitious and he had the ambition to become a count. And so Bagration, who had troubles uh, uh, controlling Platov, would often promise him uh, or you know, will dangle the promise of uh, promotion of the title of the count to make Platov do his orders. <laughs> so you see here, <laughs> it's not even enough for, for a commander, a superior, to tell Platov to do something. You also have to promise him something. Uh, 
Well, how would you evaluate uh, Platt's office? Is is he as bad as uh, all this makes him sound? Um, actually, um, as as a, as a person, uh, as a personality, he's uh, yes, he's ambitious. He is arrogant. He likes to drink. Uh, at um, at Borodino, uh, there is uh, in my book uh, I, I talk about this that uh, uh, in the in the West it's not as as known, but uh, Platov uh, was actually drunk at Borodino, which was one of the reasons, uh, albeit not an important reason, but still uh, a reason why that the famous cavalry raid failed uh, against the Grand Armée, and Kutuzov uh, was abso- very upset uh, about Platov's actions. Uh, uh, that here you have a commander of the cavalry force being drunk on the day on the day of a decisive battle, and so Platov was actually one of the two generals who were not nominated for award after the uh, after after the battle. Uh, but as a as a leader, uh, Platov was ever, very effective. He knew how to talk to Cossacks. He knew how to approach them. How to you know he knew how to appeal to them. How to lead them. And as the commander of the of the irregular force, he is uh, very effective. And of course, he proves that in 1812, 1813, 1814. And one uh, one interesting note about him: here you have Plato, who receives uh, essentially no education. He's semi-literate. Uh, who in 1815 uh, receives an honorary degree from Oxford, <laughs> which is <laughs> rather <laughs> remarkable. <laughs> Well, I mean, the, 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 the British are doing what they can, I suppose. You know, you've mentioned uh, uh, Benningson uh, earlier and, and that he was not a, uh, uh, a Russian and, and that this might have been an issue. Uh, even more famous uh, of, of the generals uh, who, who were not Russians is uh, Mikhail uh, Barclay de Tolly, uh, who who, of course, played a, a major role in the First portion, at least, of, of the 1812 campaign. Uh, how how is it that that someone like the Tolly uh, comes to be a Russian general? Um, the Tolly's family is actually uh, uh, from uh, Scotland, uh, so right. But it settled uh, in settled in um, in Lifland. Uh, Lifland is now a present day uh, Baltic states, uh, Lithuania and Lat- uh, Latvia. Uh, they, the uh, Barclay de Tolly family settled there in the 17th century. At the time, uh, Russia didn't control these regions, uh, but uh, Russia took over uh, the, the region in, following the Great Northern War uh, waged by Peter the Great. So by the time uh, Barclay de Tolly is born in 1757, his family has, uh, has lost that Scottish roots and became thoroughly uh-huh. German. And so it embraced this German uh, culture, German language. It embraced Protestantism. And uh, Barclay de Tolly enlists actually in Russian army at the age of 10. Uh, he, he starts active service in 1780s and he served as an adjutant initially, as an adjutant to, prom- uh, to various officers. And he was a very, lo- a pro- a very lucky that uh, he, was, he served as an adjutant to a prominent Russian general during uh, R- Russo-Swedish War in 1790s. And so he distinguished himself uh, in, in that war and was awarded a sword for Kari, for, for gallantry. And so he's very uh, – if you look at the descriptions of, of, uh, of Barclay de Tolly, uh, he is a very uh, reserved person. Uh, <laughs> from, uh, as, as a, you can, you, it was used as an insult, but he was described as a true German. You know, he's, a Ger- he's, re- he's cold <laughs> as a German, the expression was. And, uh, but he's a very – uh, composed, 
Uh, he's very reserved and uh, he's very methodical. And so his career shows that. He, 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 uh, he starts service, as I said, in 1767. He becomes uh, general in 1809, so uh, it's almost uh, 42 years of service, right? Uh, the, uh, yeah, 42 years of service before he became a general. Uh, and so it is a long time. Uh, and he, he earned that generalship, not as, a, as a Dolgorukov, right, who became general in 21 by doing nothing, but he, he earned it through <laughs> this very distinguished service. Uh, but he also is very good, very well educated, and this is a very important point because uh, when I, I wrote a book on Russian officer corps, in that book I, show, I, I, I cited different statistics to show that uh, Russian officer corps uh, it was uh, rather illiterate uh, in, in, in terms of uh, a large proportion of the Russian officers could read and uh, write, but on a very uh, you know, low level. Uh, and so many of them uh, uh, had no professional training in terms of uh, studying uh, theory or tactics. They learned it on, in, in, on pract- in practice. Uh, Borkadetoli, on the other hand, he received a very good education. And so, although it is not a purely military education, but he was uh, his family ensured that he was well educated uh, in his in his childhood and teenage years. And so, what happens is uh, when uh, that in 1810, Borkadetoli's this uh, uh, background, his uh, proficiency in in the military art. Uh, earns him the attention of Alexander, Emperor Alexander, and in 1810 he's appointed Minister of War. And this is when Barclay de Tolle really shows his skills. He starts a series of very important military reforms in Russia uh, in order to modernize Russian army and put it on the same level as the Grand Armée, right, to, to modernize and meet the challenge. Uh, but the fact is that, uh, that uh, Barclay de Tolle was looked upon not as a Russian but as a foreigner. And this is a sad moment because here you have a, a man who sacrifices and spends all his life serving for Russia, defending Russia, and yet he's still uh, considered an outcast. You know, he's considered an out, uh, a foreigner, an outcast. And uh, this is especially true in 1812 when Barclay de Tully insists on the strategy of retreat, which is extremely unpopular in the Russian army. Uh, majority of uh, officers support offensive. And they refer to Barclay de Tully as uh, they, 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 they use a word, word play on his name. Instead of Barclay de Tully, they refer to him as Baltai Tolka, which means all talk and nothing else. And so <laughs> uh, you have these uh, vicious attacks on him where very prominent individuals, uh, starting with the Grand Duke uh, Constantine, the brother of Alexander, uh, Emperor Alexander himself, uh, has the public confrontation with uh, with Barclay de Tolly, and he talk, he tells that uh, he tells you know Barclay in the face that you are German, you are vermin. He uses you know it's as if German being German and being vermin is the same, and he mm. accuses him of this Germanness and being vermin who tries to undermine and destroy Russian army. Uh, and so Barclay endures to his credit, he endures all of this in silence, and he knows he's right, and so he endures it. Uh, and and so I gather know, then from. I gather then from that comment that you you think he was correct that uh, yes, Constantine absolutely. and the others would have would have led to a disaster uh, had had their uh, advice been followed. I, I think so. 
And as you know, I have spent many years writing biography of Bagration. <laughs> by now, actually, by the time I finished the manuscript, it was almost 1,200 uh, pages. And so I spent so many <laughs> years working on him, and so I feel affinitive with him. And yet it pains me when I talk about 1812 when Bagration is so off that uh, he insists on attacking. He wants a more vigorous persecution of the war, and he viciously attacks Bagration de Tolly and fails to understand that Bagration de Tolly is right. And uh, although he comes to, you know, he changes his mind, uh, Bagration changes his mind only when he's, he's you know, mortally wounded at Borodino, when he finally acknowledges that Barclay de Tolly was right. And so if, if Bagration succeeded, uh, if he had pushed and uh, his plan would have accepted, then uh, you would have the decisive battle somewhere in the western uh, provinces of Russia, probably somewhere in around Smolensk. And uh, by then, Russians would have uh, Russian army would have been outnumbered by Napoleon, and pro- it, it would have been probably defeated. And so the campaign would have been completely different. And Barclay de Tolly is a tragic figure because, on one hand, he endures vilification, uh, attacks, vicious attacks on him from the army, uh, from the society, and just imagine the strength of his character that he tolerates this, keeps this uh, uh, in deep inside. Uh, and he's dismissed in August, he retires to his estate, and yet in 1813 he comes triumphantly back. Uh, Alexander appoints him back to lead the Russian army. And so it is Barclay de Tolly who commands the Russian armies in France. And so this is a, a triumphant moment to, for him. Uh, unfortunately, sure. he didn't enjoy it for much because he, he dies in 1818 of a, of a disease. Uh, so, but uh, Barclay de Tolly is a very interesting man. Uh, another very colorful uh, personality that uh, we, we want, uh, probably should talk about is uh, uh, General Miloradovich. Uh, Miloradovich, uh, the full name uh, is uh, Mikhail Miloradovich. Um, he is not Russian, actually. Or, uh, he's, uh, his name is often assumed to be Russian, but uh, it's not. He was born uh, it, uh, into a Serbian's family. Uh, so he's a, ethnically, he's a Serb. But uh, by the time he, you know, he was raised in Russia, and so he, there was uh, uh, nothing Serbian in him. Um, he was uh, remarkably for the Russian army. He was very well educated. He was uh, he's one of the very few uh, officers who received university education, and specifically, he actually went uh, to four universities. He studied at universities in Königsberg and Königsberg in Germany. And then he studied in in France uh, at the universities of Strasbourg at Metz. So he, you know he was very well educated, but he was very arrogant. Uh, and uh, in my book, I uh, I compare him to Murat. He's as arrogant and especially as fond of uh, flamboyant dresses as Murat. Uh, but he's recklessly <laughs> courageous. Uh, at uh, uh, in 1799, he's uh, he served under Suvorov in Italy, and in one of the battles, uh, as the Russian line was wavering under a French attack, Miloradovich rushed forward uh, with a flag in his hand and uh, yelled, "Soldiers, watch how Russian generals die!" And so he plunged himself again into the Russian into the French line, and actually uh, succeeded in breaking through it. Uh, he uh, he was very uh, f- uh, very successful in 1805 uh, in terms of fighting in Amstetten and uh, uh, Durenstein, and uh, he also fought uh, rather successfully, if you can call it, at Austerlitz. 
Then he moves, he was appointed to fight the Turks in the Nubian principalities, and here he developed a very bitter rivalry with uh, Bagration. And uh, uh, Bagration uh, criticized him for gambling. Um, one of the major witnesses of Miloradovic was his extreme fondness of gambling. Uh, we talk about not simply just a couple of thousands. Uh, uh, just imagine an era. This is a time when the Russian officers are paid, uh, Russian generals, excuse me, are paid about 2,000 rubles a year. And uh, according to Bagration, uh, Miloradovic had the debt of about 600,000 rubles. Now imagine. Wow. <laughs> just staggering. And so he, he, was, uh, he had this gambling addiction that ran him into the ground. But he was also very ambitious. Uh, and so Langeron, whom we already talked about, he describes him as, quote, devoured by ambition, blinded by excessive self-esteem and intoxicated by his successes. And so he never concealed his untamed aspiration to become the commander in chief. So just imagine how difficult it is to deal with a guy that has uh, <coughs> uh, this kind of uh, ambition. One of my favorite uh, description of him comes actually from 1812. Uh, a Russian officer uh, describes uh, the meeting between uh, Miloradovich and Mira. Uh, this is uh, in 1812, right, uh, around Moscow, and Yermolov writes, Miloradovich met Mira uh, on more than one occasion. In their conversation, it was easy to notice that the French were not always the frontrunners in boasting. If, uh, if it were <laughs> possible to forget the war... Their meetings would have, been, would have seemed like an entertainment at local fair. Mirai appeared either dressed in Spanish fashion or in an unbelievably ridiculous costume with a saber hat or flashy pantaloons. Miloradovich, on the other hand, would be on a Cossack horse with a whip in hand and three brightly colored shawls wrapped around his neck and flapping in the wind. There was no third man <laughs> like them in either army. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's great. I'm glad to hear yeah. the Russians have someone to compete with Mura for, for flamboyancy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And so, uh, well, actually, Miloradovich and Mura had the famous armistice uh, at Mo Moscow where they, they meet and actually struck this impromptu armistice. Uh, and Mura allows Russians to get out of Moscow. And so this is more like a personal exchange between Miloradovich and Mira right on, on the eve of uh, surrender of Moscow. But Miloradovich ends uh, his life rather tragically. Now, he served very uh, successfully and with distinction in, in, Fran in Germany and France in 1813 and 14, and he went on to become military governor of St. Petersburg. And so by that time, he's uh, idolized in the army. He's very, very popular. But in 1825, there is the famous December uprising in Moscow, and uh, the, the rebel officers uh, feared that Miloradovich, as the military governor, may uh, go to see the, uh, the rebel troops and use his popularity to, uh, to uh, pacify them, right, to calm them down. And so when Miloradovich appeared in front of the troops tr trying to appeal to them, uh, as, as soon as he opened his mouth, one of the officers shot him to prevent him from talking to the, um, to the troops. And so he was killed in 1825. Hmm. Well, we, we are running a little low on time, but I, there's a couple more I'd like to, uh, to have you comment on, 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 on this segment anyway. You've mentioned the, the, the great conflict between uh, de Tully and Bagration, and of course, uh, you are diligently working on the 
the, the quintessential biography of uh, Peter Bagration. Uh, what, what can you tell us about him? And by the way, before, before I, I let you answer that, I want to make sure that I don't forget <clears throat> to promote your uh, book on this subject. If you uh, listeners would like to read more about uh, in any of these people and a lot more besides, uh, Alex has written the book called The Russian Officer Corps, and it is full of absolutely fascinating uh, stories about these folks. Uh, we'll try to put up some information on, on our website <laughs> if, if we haven't already. Uh, it's, it's, it's a book that anyone with any interest in, in this uh, subject matter really, really has to, uh, to, to get a hold of. And, of course, uh, Alex's latest book, Borodino, is also an absolute must-read for anyone with an interest in, in, in the Russian campaign. But anyway, that said, let's, uh, let's hear something about your buddy, Bagration. <laughs> uh, well, Bagration is a, a, long pa- in a, a long-standing passion of mine. I started uh, st- uh, researching him almost uh, 13 years ago, so you can imagine how long I have been with him. It feels like and, a family member that- by now. What got you started? Why? I mean, people ask me why Napoleon, and you, you, we ask uh, Jerry Gallagher, you know, why why Davu, and we ask uh, others, you know, why Massena, why Bagration? Um, the answer would be that um, when I was a pupil in a Soviet school, um, I remember well uh, the, when uh, at school, uh, my uh, teacher actually talked about Napoleon and uh, Napoleonic Wars, and uh, she mentioned that... Um, uh, there was this uh, general, Peter Bagration, and uh, I was the only Georgian in class, and uh, she smiled, looked at me, and said, and by the way, he was Georgian. And so I remember this sense of pride that, oh, my God, they, oh, he, here you have Bagration who fought Napoleon, the arch enemy of, you know, of and he was successful. At least that's, what, that's how uh, it was taught back then. And so uh, since that childhood, I remember uh, reading, trying to read up on him, and he is the most successful Georgian general of Napoleonic Wars. <laughs> so I want to I promote, promote him. Uh, but uh, the sad <laughs> thing for me, at least, is that uh, although he's Georgian and he's born in the royal family of Georgia, he's, uh, he's the great-grandson of a you know, king, of jo- of king of Eastern Georgia, he never, never felt as a Georgian. Uh, he actually felt himself as a Russian. And... Um, uh, in, in Georgia, especially in recent years, when you have this more of a national, you know, patriotic nationalist historical literature coming out, it is quite critical uh, of Bagration because uh, he perceived Georgia as a small province inside Russian Empire. He didn't envision it as a separate kingdom, a separate nation. But he's a very fascinating guy. Uh, he who was born on in, in in Georgia? He's born in uh, in, in Tbilisi, in capital of Georgia. But his family, by the time he's born, uh, is uh, has lost power. Is not in and he's not in on the throne anymore, and instead persecuted. And so they flee to Russia, where his father enlists and enters the service of the Russian uh, Empire. And so they live in a very small city in Dagest, the present-day Dagestan, in North Caucasus. Uh, the city is Kislyar, uh, uh, a small town. Where uh, Bagration receives no education, he he only, he finished only a garrison school for uh, children, uh, but he's very he has these natural talents for 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 war, and so he he achieves uh, very uh, great successes serving under Suvorov, and Suvorov notices him, and he's one of the very few so- com- uh, commanders that Suvorov is fond of. He, he, Suvorov called him very affinately, simply as Prince Peter. You now, sometime my Peter. 
And so Bagration will be looked upon as the as a symbol of the of the Russian army after Suvorov passes, and uh, he he's very successful. Uh, in 1805, he re, he, def, he protects Russian army from Napoleon during the retreat. In 1807, he does the same. He protects Russian army during the retreats, fights heroically. In 1808, uh, he in 1809 he serves in in, in Finland, where he uh, led the famous. Uh, Russian crossing of the uh, Gulf of Bothnia, uh, the, when Bagration's uh, corps actually crossed the Gulf, uh, across the ice, and directly threatened Sweden. Uh, then in 1889, uh, he served against Turks, achieving quite, uh, quite interesting victories over them. But his uh, prominence, of course, comes from 1812, when uh, he, he fights uh, heroically, but he ultimately dies uh, at, uh, at Borodino. Physically, Bagration is a, is, a, is a classic Georgian, dark-featured, uh, uh, with, with his long aquiline nose. And uh, the, the nose, uh, actually, the nose was uh, you know, worse than Wellington's nose. <laughs> Even oh, greater my. Hook. Oh, my. <laughs> and so, so he was uh, ridiculed for that. And there is this great uh, anecdote. Uh, Denis Davidov, that we already mentioned uh, in previous broadcasts, Denis Davidov was his adjutant. And in 1807, uh, Denis Davidov uh, rushes in uh, to Bagration's uh, tent where Bagration is having a lunch. And Davidov is a Russian, and so he has this very nice, small (laughs) Russian-type nose. And so he rushes in the tent and he tells Bagration, uh, Your Excellency, the enemy is on our nose. That's the Russian expression. And so Bagration looks at him, smiles, and he says, Whose nose? If my nose, <laughs> then we can finish the lunch. If your nose, we should get the hell out of here. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And so it's a, he's a very fascinating guy. He's very, uh, very colorful uh, personality. He feels very strongly about uh, about Russia, and uh, he feels very strongly, especially in 1812, when uh, it seems to him that no one. Uh, tries to defend Russia and that he, it is up to him to, to properly defend Russia and that is by attacking Napoleon. And so that is why he launches that vitriolic attacks against Barclay de Tolly because he feels that he, he, Barclay de Tolly surrenders land, you know, one province after another. Um, any other generals you want to talk? Well, I think the, the, the last one for, <clears throat> for this time, when, when I was in, uh, in Borodino, one of my one of my two trips to Borodino, I recall going into uh, a little hut, a cabin kind of thing, where where uh, Tolstoy uh, wrote uh, War and Peace, or did some work on yes. War and Peace. Anyway, uh, just an amazing place to visit. To imagine someone like Tolstoy, you know, sitting in this little thing and and, and writing. Uh, and I see you have uh, Alexander Ivanovich Osterman Tolstoy uh, on your list of generals, and of course, I'm I'm wondering what relationship uh, uh, there might be there. Uh, well, actually, Tolstoy's uh, um, there is this is not it's not a direct relationship, but um, they are more of a like cousin nephew uh, relationship. What happens is um, uh, Osterman uh, Alex um, Osterman Tolstoy is born into a very two 
prominent families on uh, the Tolstoy family, which is a Russian, very old, uh, noble family, and the Ostermann family, which is an also very wealthy, extremely wealthy uh, German uh, family. And uh, his parents came from these two lines, and so they combined into the one. But there is no dire- direct relationship to the Leo Tolstoy. Uh, but uh, Osterman Tolstoy is a very, very good general, probably one of the best generals uh, Russia had at the time. He's a good, very good uh, on tactical level, operational level. He didn't have a chance to command armies, uh, but he, uh, he um, the highest he got was a, in charge of a corps. Uh, but the, one of the most famous incidents that, uh, uh, in a good story about him, is in 1812, uh, when the Russian army, the, uh, he served in the first Western army, under Barclay de Tolly, and when the first Western Army was retreating, uh, he he fought a major rearguard action uh, at uh, at Ostrovno right before uh, Smolensk. And at Ostrovno, his small uh, detachment had to delay uh, may, uh, several uh, French corps, and so he rides back to Barclay de Tolly saying, "I cannot, I, I cannot stop them. I have to retreat." And Barclay de Tolly tells him, "No, you have to." Uh, hold ground at any cost, and so he, uh, Tolle receive, oh, excuse me, Osterman Tolstoy receives the message, and the officers wait, uh, you know, ask him what's the order, and he turns to them and say, "The order is to stand and die," and <laughs> and so that's uh, <laughs> that's what they do. He loses almost two almost uh, two thirds of his detachment at Ostrovno, but he stops <laughs> the French army for an entire day. Well, that's pretty impressive. Well, listen, my friend. Uh We've gone through, it looks like, about a third to a half of, of the uh, generals you, you gave me, and I know there's even a lot more than these. Uh, I think we need to have you come back and do it again. Thank you. I'll, I'll be happy to do it again. Well, unless there's an absolute uprising out there in our, in our, amongst our listeners, uh, you know, enough with the Russian generals already, which I rather <laughs> seriously doubt will be the case because, again, this is, these are people that we generally don't know much of anything about. And we might also next time uh, go back and pick up a little bit on Berezina. I know you, you've got a lot of interesting s- stories to tell about that that we, that we didn't get to. Uh, and again, ladies and gentlemen, but, uh, but uh, the stories Alex, that you, probably you wouldn't like. These are the stories that well, probably you wouldn't like. <laughs> because I'm critical well, of Napoleon. You know? <laughs> well, you're allowed to be critical of of of, of Napoleon. Uh, that's that's uh, you know, uh, it's, it's a little questioning as to why you would want to be critical of Napoleon. But uh, <laughs> and there's, there's no question, is that we 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 get teased about this about uh, a lot that you know we don't. You know, we only speak favorably of Napoleon, and and that's actually not very true. If anyone were to plow through all fifty-two episodes, you'd you, you'd hear some some criticism. But but uh, <clears throat> at any rate, uh, I want to once again uh, tell our listeners that that uh, Alex's uh, latest book is on the Battle of Borodino. Uh, and he's also uh, written a book called The Russian Officer Corps, 
uh, both of which are are really outstanding works and 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 something that deals with subject matter that here before in the Western uh, uh, media, if you will, I was not, not media, but in the Western uh, studies of Napoleonic history, uh, is material that's that's really been uh, shortchanged. Uh, very very little is is known about a lot of these folks, and and of course, what's written about Borodino and others is generally speaking written from the French perspective. So, uh, Alex has made. Uh, major contributions to our field he's of course made major contributions to our podcast and we'll look forward to having you on again wow i'm, I'm, I'm blushing here thank you so much <laughs> it's, it's an honor to be, to be part of this project thank you alex really the honor the it. honor is ours thank you so we'll see you next time then next till next time